Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Ian Vasquez. I direct our Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. One of the distinguishing and annoying features of any discussion about economic development in Washington is that uh, almost inevitably that discussion uh, quickly devolves into a discussion about foreign aid. And I say it's annoying because if there's one thing we know from six decades of foreign aid experience is that aid is not a key to development. Other factors play a role in, in determining whether a country develops or not. For example, government policies or institutions that encourage or discourage wealth creations. These observations are not uh, controversial among development experts, especially development economists. And yet, uh, for a good part of this decade, uh, a debate has been raging about foreign aid. Something funny is happening in the world of foreign aid. There is a huge gap uh, between the political push to massively increase aid, led by economist Jeffrey Sachs, the United Nations, and international financial uh, institutions on the one hand, and the academic and scholarly literature produced by researchers at the World Bank, at the IMF, and at universities, which find that aid is ineffective at promoting uh, growth and reform. Somehow, uh, what I would call the consensus view among development economists, that aid is not a key to development, much less big increases in aid, is downplayed or ignored uh, in favor of emotive arguments uh, to help the poor, something which we all uh, would like to do. I would even include uh, long-time development practitioners among that uh, expert consensus and uh, one thing that I've found uh, is that most longtime practitioners, be they people at the World Bank or elsewhere, are extremely skeptical of uh, proposals to uh, try to solve the whole array of developing country problems through yet more international transfers of wealth. So despite the evidence, uh, today we're being distracted by aid debates that sound almost identical to those that uh, were being had several decades ago and when old ideas which have since been discredited, uh, such as poverty traps or the need for a big push, are being resurrected. Foreign aid can be harmful, and it often is. Some of us might say it typically is. In the worst of cases, when aid goes to governments that are unaccountable to their citizens or that have some of the worst economic policies on record, the result is debt and corruption, not development. And it seems that Africa is the worst of cases, and in, indeed it has become the focal point of the b debate on poverty and aid. That's why I'm pleased to have with us today our main speaker, Dembisa Moyo, who not only tells the story of aid on her continent, but also outlines alternatives to development in her new book, Dead Aid. Uh, Dembisa Moyo is only the latest African voice out of many that are increasingly rising up to protest the West's political campaign for more aid. Other prominent Africans who are, are doing so include uh, Andrew Muenda, the Ugandan journalist who has been jailed on several occasions for uh, criticizing the government for their lack of accountability and for linking that in part to, to aid. Maletsi Mbeki, the former South African president's brother who has written extensively on the role that elites have played in combination with aid in the region. John Gatongo, the Kenyan 
anti-corruption czar who had to flee the country when he discovered uh, the extent of corruption in several parties in his country. He, too, uh, sees a very uh, negative role that aid has played. George Ayete, the head of the Free Africa uh, Foundation. Franklin Gujo, the, uh, the head of a think tank in Ghana who is uh, in favor of other alternatives to, to develop. I could name many, many more. So it is my pleasure today to be able to introduce Dembisa, who has, uh, as probably most of you know, been ubiquitous these days in the New York Times and NPR. She was on the Colbert Show the other night. And uh, her appearances have already re-sparked the debate on foreign aid. And uh, that includes a good dose of, uh, I think, uh, what you might call unfair criticism, including in today's Washington Post, where columnist Michael Garrison takes her to task for daring to mention that some humanitarian uh, aid programs, like uh, you, the United States anti-aid program, can be critiqued, even though Dambisa makes clear at the very beginning of her book uh, that her book is not about that. It's not about humanitarian aid, and so she doesn't deal with that. That, however, is not stopping Garrison and others from claiming that millions would die in the world if people took her advice. So, if anything, it it shows that it takes guts to run up against the aid establishment and their uh, proponents. Dambisa Moyo uh, has worked at, uh, worked at Goldman Sachs for eight years. Previous to that, she was a World Bank consultant. She got her Ph.D. from Oxford University and holds a master's from Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government, and she was born in Lusaka, Zambia. Please help me welcome Dambisa Moyo. Hello, good afternoon, and uh, thank you everybody for being here. I am assuming that you're here actually because you, like myself, are very concerned about what is going on um, in the African continent. Um, I thought what I would do this afternoon, I'm going to speak, I guess, for about 20 or 30 minutes, is uh, talk a little bit about the motivation for writing the book, and then spend a little bit of time talking about uh, my main criticisms um, of, the, of the aid model and then spend a little bit of time talking about the, um, the alternative ways of financing economic development. Um, I must say, when I was writing this book, I thought that the second half of the book was much more interesting. Um, it was uh, uh, a positive uh, sort of prescriptions about how we can actually get Africa back on track, but actually nobody's really interested in good news. Um, we're all very focused on the bad news, and so um, I very rarely get a chance to talk uh, about those uh, alternatives, and perhaps... Um, uh, it, it is more, uh, it's quite telling actually that uh, the need, there's a need for me to focus on why we're criticizing aid because that is really the status quo. Um, if you had met me a few weeks ago, I probably wouldn't have started off by talking about uh, um, the motivations for writing this book or um, giving you sort of a preface uh, that I'm about to do now. And uh, before I, I give you my disclaimers, let me just explain why. Um, there is what I perceive to be a deliberate uh, response, a deliberate attempt by many of uh, my critics, and actually not just my criti critics, uh, or, or I should say aid advocates, um, to, to com conflate the issues. Um, and so I will come to more detail about this later, but uh, they are deliberately uh, misinterpreting what I'm saying. Um, they are not focusing on the fundamental view, which is, I believe, 
we are all, whether we're left-leaning or right-leaning or uh, die-hard advocates for more aid or more skeptical uh, like myself, um, we, I think we all have the same goal, which is to see Africa um, join the rest of the world um, in, in an economic prosperity or at least in the path to development and to meaningfully reduce poverty. Um, of course, we may ha- not have the same approach on how we get there, but uh, the pur- purpose of this book was actually to open the debate and get the dialogue going um, because uh, I am a, a very proud African, but I'm also a very concerned African population has over 60% currently of its population under the age of 24. Um, in some countries, many countries, uh, over 50% of the population is under the age of 15. And uh, we should be worried because uh, if we continue um, down the path that we're on right now, uh, which has not delivered jobs, uh, we will be in a, in a much worse situation than we are now, where um, in many countries over 70% of the population lives in, uh, under a dollar a day, um, dramatically up from the 1970s where um, 10% of the population lived under a dollar a day. Um, I want to start off by clarifying what I mean by aid here. I talk about this in the book, but this is a classic example of something that uh, aid critics are, are d- deliberately ignoring. Um, in the book... And as my perspective uh, leads me to the view that there are basically three types of aid. There's humanitarian or emergency aid, which is the type of aid that we would give for um, a Katrina, or Fargo, uh, an earthquake, a tsunami. Um, I believe that as a, a global community, we have a moral imperative, a moral uh, rationale to intervene in those type of situations. Um, that is not the type of aid that I'm discussing in this book. Nor am I talking about charitable aid, um, and uh, charitable NGO, non-governmental aid, is relatively small beer. Um, it's, it's not uh, and should not be the focus of, of my book. Um, there are many problems with uh, both these type of aid, uh, uh, forms of aid, which are uh, um, very well known, um, but the book is not talking about those. Um, I will come back later to uh, some of the problems, touch upon some of the problems that these type of uh, interventions introduce, but I really want to underscore that my criticisms in this book and in, this, in my couple of words do not pertain to, uh, uh, to these type of aid, uh, aid models. Um, I should also say that I'm guilty that there's uh, not much that's really new in this book. Um, the book is dedicated to Peter Bauer, who uh, in the 1950s and 60s wrote pretty much a lot of the stuff that uh, I am talking about now. Um, He uh, was ostracized from society, pretty much, of the economic discourse, I must say. Um, Later on in life, he did come back into the fold. He's a Hungarian economist who actually uh, spent most of his life in Britain, um, but also lived in places like Nigeria and Malaysia. And many of the concerns that he had during the aid, uh, initial sort of time when the architects of aid were putting it together, um, have come true, and we'll come to, to what the problems are there. But um, I'm not pretending to have come up with the idea of the bond market or uh, microfinance. I would have loved to do that. I, I didn't. Um, but I, I do think that, uh, you know, don't leave here thinking that uh, this, what I'm saying here is, is new. Um, I think, the, in fact, I know that the, the role of this book was not to provide uh, information to experts uh, in the field of development economics, um, they are very well aware of these arguments. In fact, um, in the book, I cite the research from academic institutions, development organizations such as the World Bank, on their own research saying that uh, aid, uh, aid effectiveness has been questionable. Um, the last thing I'm going to say before I, I go into the criticisms of aid 
has to do with the celebrity culture. Um, I'll get that out, get it out of the way. Uh, and it, it, this is linked into one of my main criticisms of aid, but I think it's important that we get it out of, out of the way now. I have three main criticisms with the whole um, celebrity culture, and I, I only say this because, again, I find that uh, you know, uh, a lot of the, the, the major celebrities are um, sort of launching campaigns uh, on the Internet in particular uh, against the book, and I, I fear that they're actually taking away from actually having the debate about the merits and demerits of aid. But very quickly, the three problems I have. Um, number one, they're pushing the wrong message. Um, they're pushing a message of more aid. Um, I don't agree with that, and we'll talk about why I don't agree with that. But second of all, they embody um, or essentially an artifact of precisely the problems with aid in the sense that African governments um, are scarcely heard from about the issues uh, and, and, what, and the future of Africa, um, Africa's prospects. Um, they, they, beating the celebrities, have essentially become the uh, uh, de facto face of Africa, um, and yet they're not elected officials. So, I mean, it's not clear to me why it is that we turn to them for, uh, for guidance on, uh, on African policy. Um, the last thing that I find particularly offensive and unacceptable about the celebrity culture vis-a-vis -vis Africa is that it's couched in negativity. Um, in the book, I call, I call it the four horsemen of Africa's apocalypse, which is the fact that it, it tends to focus very much like the media on wars and corruption, um, disease and poverty. Yes, those are some aspects, and many, many countries of Africa suffer from some combination of that, but there's some positive things going on in the continent that uh, it would seem to me with the following that uh, these celebrities command, it would be much better use of, of time and effort to galvanize um, support and uh, 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 and uh, um, investment across the continent based on a more positive message instead of perpetuating negative stereotypes and uh, more so than asking us as Africans to raise uh, you know, young Africans um, to, be, to be equal contributors on the, on the global stage. Um, but it's virtually impossible to encourage or motivate young people when they, when they think they live in a, a continent that's pretty much hopeless. So those are my disclaimers. Um, Later on, we can talk about bailout aid versus long-term aid, but a lot of this will come out uh, in, in the discussion. Um, what I've done is actually I came up with, uh, using David Letterman's style, the top ten reasons why aid doesn't work, but I'm not going to be able to go through all of them. But let me just give you a bit of flavor, starting off with the most obvious one, which is corruption. I actually don't want to spend much time on this because it's very, very uh, obvious and logical. The fact that a lot of the aid that goes to Africa um, comes into Africa with weak or no conditionalities um, means that it's uh, in, in uh, economics parlance, you'd say that, that there would not be any rent-seeking without a rent. It means that aid provides a rent that governments have in the past stolen, um, but also it's, it's not something from the past in Africans' history. It's happening today. Um, the former president of Zambia, as we speak, is embroiled in a corruption scandal, President Chiluba, um, having stole, uh, stolen um, uh, millions of dollars, and uh, which was diverted funds from the HIPIC, uh, HIPIC program, but also from other aid interventions. Um, just six weeks ago, former president of Malawi charged with stealing as much as, uh, as little as, well, not as little, but at least $12 million, um, again, f from aid. Um, the, I wish the, the corruption story was something of the past. It's not. And uh, unfortunately, given the incentive structure of the aid industry, the fact that donors are incentivized to give money to Africa... Um, because obviously they have a lot of uh, invest, invested interests. There are a lot of Westerners who work in the aid industry. Uh, there are votes that could be lost 
uh, if tomorrow, for example, President Obama stood up and said, we're not giving aid anymore, he could lose um, a, 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 broad sense of the, a broad set of the constituents. Um, but not only are there ins- bad incentives coming from the donor community, but also there are incentives for African governments to take, to take more money. Um, the second point I want to raise about the aid culture is that it, governments essentially abdicate their responsibilities. Um, if you think about a government and their responsibilities, again, uh, yes, we can quibble about how much or how big the government should be, but fundamentally, public goods and also things like education, health care, infrastructure, and um, security even should be provided by governments. In many countries such as my own, um, the government is not involved in these sectors. Uh, NGOs have come in, and uh, I mean, this is a bit of a quip, but somebody did say to me, you know what? Uh, maybe we should stop bothering uh, to, to go and vote for our leaders to become presidents. We should just start to have voting, uh, you know, one charity versus another. So charity A can provide better health care than charity B and just completely forget uh, um, African, uh, African elections systems. And I think there's some, it says a lot that people feel that way. Our governments, um, by and large, do not provide education do not provide infrastructure. That's being done by the Chinese. Healthcare is being provided by the Gates Foundation. Uh, we have uh, um, security provided by the UN. So the question is, what is the role of the African government? Um, from my vantage point, they are supposed to be, they are charged with the responsibility of being at the forefront. Um, I shouldn't have to stand here. You should be looking to be here to listen to what the president of Zambia or Rwanda or Kenya has to say about the, uh, the fact that the continent is spiraling in the, in the wrong direction. Bureaucracy, inflation, debt burden, these are all artifacts of the aid model, very well documented. Um, they, they are not, uh, aid is not the only source of these type of problems, but um, again, in the economics literature, it's widely shown that there are linkages between dumping large uh, vast sums of money into small, small economies and what that implies for things like inflation um, and, and also the export sector. Um, the problem with bureaucracy, if I may spend a bit of time on this, is that um, if you think about the American uh, slogan, no, ta- no taxation without representation, we are now in a, in a very low uh, equilibrium where African governments uh, need not uh, live or die by African taxes. Um, so that means that they actually have disenfranchised Africans. They're not necessarily interested or acting on behalf of Africans. Um, they spend much more time courting donors, listening to NGOs, than listening to their own people. Um, they, uh, the, the ensuing bureaucracies are so um, – they're creaking and they're laden with bureaucracy to the point that many of the entrepreneurs – uh, in Africa, struggle to actually start their businesses. And the World Bank, again, has written extensively about, about things like doing business in Africa, how difficult it is. There are some countries it takes two years to get a business license and an inordinate a, a number of processes. So um, you, one would think that if a government's livelihood and its mere existence uh, depended on the private sector, as it does in many countries such as the United States, um, the government would actually care to see the... the, uh, the uh, uh, the private sector develop. We see uh, trade programs. Uh, somebody I was just talking today at the IMF about the fact that Africa's trade share of, uh, of global, uh, global trade is trending downwards. It's now 2%. It was 4% a few years ago. Um, 
very illustrative again of the fact that rather than encourage uh, trade uh, on, on the African continent, governments aren't bothered to, to try and make, it, make the environment more conducive for foreign direct investment. They'd rather, uh, and actually they do, uh, rely much more heavily on, uh, on foreign, uh, foreign aid. Um, in the book, I talk about political, the political vulnerability of an aid model. It seems to me no surprise that in the past five months, we've had four coups in Africa, Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, Mauritania, and just a couple of weeks ago, Madagascar. Um, it also seems no surprise to me that in the 1990s, there were more civil wars in Africa than the rest of the world combined. Um, the state is the main source of capital in these countries, and so these are, tend to be wars of capture. Um, and yes, there are other wars uh, and other motivations, but by and large, uh, there seems to me to be a clear uh, rationale for, for the type of uh, political instability that we see uh, that, that permeates the continent. Um, let me just say a couple of things about the solutions. Um, the good news is that they're all very obvious. Um, we're very familiar as a society with what China and India have managed to do uh, in, in you know, 25, 30 years. Um, moving 300 million people out of poverty is uh, no small feat. Um, and I think particularly given that China was poorer than many African countries uh, just you know, 25, 30 years ago, uh, it makes it all the, the more remarkable. Um, my recommendations are, are obvious, um, and I think fundamentally they point to the idea that Africa is wasting time having these ongoing negotiations about aid, and it needs to be much more infused with um, the ideas of, uh, of the free market. Yes, the free market is being challenged, but it's important, uh, just to paraphrase uh, President Obama from his inauguration speech, the free market system is still the best system that we know for delivering wealth. So it may have had its challenges. This is 300 years uh, uh, later, um, after showing significant improvements. Um, I think the takeaway from what's happened in the credit markets is not to say that we should throw away uh, the free markets. I think we should be much more focused on um, on figuring out how we can regulate them better so we can get the best out of the system. In the book, I talk about trade. I talk about the capital markets. I'll talk about that in a second. I talk about foreign direct investment, and I also talk about more micro things like um, microfinance. Um, all of these are tried and tested. Uh, Africa would really just be uh, uh, following on from the uh, from other examples, not just China and India or Russia and Brazil but also on the African continent itself, places like South Africa and Botswana have managed to meaningfully reduce poverty and are on ostensibly the right path. Um, when I look at some of the writing that's been done, since the, particularly since the 1980s, by institutions such as the World Bank and IMF, it's not that their models of economic development do not include the, the sort of uh, prescriptions that I've just outlined here. Um, they do, but they're just not aggressive enough about implementing them. Um, and, you know, have, I just, as I said, I just had lunch today at the, uh, at the IMF, and you could tell from the conversation that um, there's a, a general uh, sense that this is a political economy problem, that Africa's stuck in this uh, unfortunate cycle where the incentives um, are, are, are negative. Um, so giving money is an incentive, but it's, it's not couched in, uh, in ensuring that we get the right outcomes or positive outcomes. Um, African governments are incentivized to take money. The prescriptions I offer here require hard work um, when it's much easier to pick up the phone and call and get more, more money from, from, the, uh, from the international institutions. 
I think also people, um, having spoken again to people at the IMF, it seems to me that they too are very concerned. Um, they asked me, did I think that the capacity in Africa has improved after 60 years and a trillion dollars? I don't feel confident, um, having spent time with Zambian policymakers, Rwandan policymakers, uh, and policymakers in Nigeria and Kenya. Um, I'm more confident that these governments can actually stand uh, on their own without uh, uh, expert intervention. And this is after you know, billions of dollars have been, uh, have been sent to the continent um, and begs the question, what exactly are we doing? Um, I do not see a world where long-term African governments can uh, completely abdicate their responsibilities to foreigners. Um, I, I hope that we all have the uh, strength and the, the, the uh, reality check to say that uh, the system's not working. Um, but it's more than, it's, just, it's not a matter of uh, just placing a Band-Aid over it. It's a fundamental overhaul that is required here. Um, we need to encourage African countries to do what uh, other countries have done around the world, such as the Chinas and Indias and so on. Um, and that requires doing the hard work. I'm going to end off with a, a quote that a Nigerian friend of mine said to me. He was querying why it was I bothered to, um, uh, to write this book. He said, you know, you're, you're wasting your time. Uh, nobody cares, and uh, it's, it's pretty much irrelevant. And uh, he also then said to me, Africa is to development what Mars is to NASA. He said, uh, we spend billions of dollars. I thought it was funny. He said, we spend billions of dollars researching, analyzing, doing tests and all this about uh, Mars, but nobody actually really believes that uh, we're going to live on Mars, and nobody actually believes that Africa is going to develop, which is why the cycle um, perpetuates. And actually, now that I've just finished, I remember that Ian wanted me to mention, was, we're talking about the uh, uh, Russian thing. Was I talking to you about it? I'll just say one last thing. Um, uh, while I was at the World Economic Forum earlier this year, and I think this under, underscores why we have this aid model, which I believe is fundamentally couched in this uh, notion of pity, um, but there was an interesting uh, situation that occurred at the World Economic Forum. There was a panel um, where uh, Prime Minister Putin and uh, Michael Dell were, were on this panel. And at the end of the panel, the moderator turned to the panel and said, does anybody have any questions? And Michael Dell turned around and said, I, I actually have a question. I'd like to ask uh, Prime Minister Putin from Russia a question. He said, okay, yes. And he said, the question for you is, how can we help Russia? What, you know, what can we do to help you? And, uh, I mean, I thought it was pretty gutsy, because just looking at uh, Prime Minister Putin, I'd be scared. <laughs> um, and Prime Minister Putin turned around with this incredibly quizzical look, and he said, that's exactly the problem. You ask you, how can we help Russia? He said, we're not invalids. We can actually do something for ourselves. If you want to come to our country and support us, and be a partnership in, in generating jobs and providing long-term development, we're interested. But we're not interested in this whole notion of, of helping in a very pitiful kind of approach. And I think that really underscores the, the aid, model, uh, aid model in Africa. It, it, must, it has to be the case that it's couched in pity because the results have been so awful for so long. And I just remind us that while we're criticizing the capitalistic model, I would urge us to also criticize and, and really analyze objectively the, the, the aid, uh, aid model to Africa. I'll leave it there. Thanks very much. Our next speaker is Todd Moss, who is a senior fellow and a director of the Emerging 
Africa project at the Center for Global Development here in Washington. Prior to that, he was for about a year and a half or so a Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Bureau of African Affairs at the U.S. Department of State. Uh, he's worked on the whole range of African development issues. He has also worked at the World Bank. He's been a lecturer at the London School of Economics. He's worked at the Economist Intelligence Unit. Is <clears throat> the author of two books on Africa, including African Development, Making Sense of the Issues and Actors. <clears throat> and he has also been uh, an author of uh, several very good studies on, on aid that take a critical look at things like uh, whether aid is actually effective at uh, improving institutions in recipient countries uh, and uh, looking at some claims that are often heard, such as the famous 0.7% uh, figure as a goal for foreign aid that seems to, according to Todd Moss's research, have come out of nowhere. Todd? <laughs> Okay, uh, th thank you very much, uh, Ian. Th thank you for inviting me uh, to be here in the middle of, uh, of Dumbisa's uh, media vortex. Dumbisa, thank you, uh, thank you uh, for, for having me here today, and uh, congratulations uh, on the publication of the book and, uh, and really the quite incredible attention um, that it's gotten from just a, a very, very broad uh, uh, range of media sources. I think if, you're, if your primary goal is to generate a healthy debate about foreign policy issues, I think you've already succeeded. Um, uh, we've seen that, and I think the, the access to something like the Colbert Report is, uh, uh, is indicative that, uh, that you've struck a chord. Um, and I think at a time when global foreign aid has never been higher than it is today, that it's, it's critically important that we have strong voices uh, on these issues coming from all parts of the globe, uh, and in particular from Africans that are frustrated with, uh, uh, with the global aid system and with the results that we've had over the last uh, 40 or 50 years. Um, I thought it was a nice touch uh, dedicating it to Peter Bauer, um, a good reminder that these are really very quite old debates. Uh, in some ways, I felt a little bit like we weren't going back to the 50s, but back to those of you that were, that were here in Washington in the early 90s, kind of Jesse Helms period when we were talking about rat holes uh, is our AIDS going? Is it good or bad? Um, and I, I, I was, I've been a little surprised with the, the debate that I thought we had, uh, the debate had kind of moved on from there, but I see uh, that, that we're in some ways back uh, at that point. Uh, I think the book uh, makes several uh, very, very important points. I, I would urge people to actually read the book and not just the, uh, the book reviews or the blogs, of which there are plenty. Um, um, and so, and there, there are areas where, where I certainly agree, where it fits with a lot of the work and research that I've done. Um, but there are also some areas that that, that I have uh, that, that will have points of departure, which I'll, I'll come to. Um, I really just want to make. Uh, I, I know you're not all here to hear me. You're here to see Dumbisa. So I'll just uh, make three points today uh, on the harm of aid. Uh, that not all aid is the same. And uh, if you read the book, it, the book proposes uh, a cutoff of aid in, in five years. I want to talk a little bit about the politics of such a scenario. <clears throat> so my first point is that we do, in the, in the development community, in the foreign policy community, and in the public, public sector, really need to be honest uh, and point out the negative effects of the global aid system, including both the costs on recipient governments, 
uh, and and, uh, and uh, recipient populations, and the real purpose of some of the the aid targets and some of the aid hoopla uh, that uh, that Dembisa mentioned. I mean, I fully agree that that we've had a real uh, m- kind of mindless focus in some ways on big aid targets uh, with massive unrealistic promises. Uh, one is is the, the famous zero point seven, um, uh, which I'd be happy to talk more about later, but. This 0.7 comes out of uh, a long series of, uh, of uh, academic accidents, uh, but it's still held out as that's, that's the right amount of money we should spend. Uh, we, we also get a lot. There's a good section in the book on the, on the Marshall Plan. We get a lot of people that misread the lessons, I believe, of, of the Marshall Plan and think that because we were able to re- reconstruct Europe after World War II with a burst of aid in a short period, that we can transplant that model to Africa, something uh, that I, I don't think is, is, uh, is right. Uh, and more recently, we've had the Millennium Development Goals, uh, and in particular, some of the costing studies that looked at the Millennium Development Goals and tried to come up with estimates of how much money we had to spend to achieve them. Now, th- there's a nuance here. If you read the costing studies, well, it- it's the difference between saying... Um, you need $100 to get uh, a child uh, in school who's not in school right now. But that's not the same thing as saying if you spend $100, that child will go to school. Um, Yet the MDG costing studies have been misused in a way to justify doubling aid levels. Uh, And at the time uh, of the MDGs, global aid was was around $53 billion, according to the the OECD. And we were told that if we double aid, we can achieve the MDGs. Well, it's actually been at double that level for the past four years. Uh, The OECD announced earlier this week that global aid was at a record level of $119 billion in 2008. Uh, but also, I don't think we've heard anybody say, now we're going to achieve the MDGs, or that this is enough. I think we're actually hearing that we, we now need more. I think Bill Easterly often says, whenever we don't know how much aid we need, we just say, let's double it. Um, so, But really, if we think about the aid targets, it's about fundraising. It's not about aid policy. Um, but I think that distinction sometimes gets, uh, gets people lost. I also w- would absolutely agree with Ambisa that much of the pleading for aid is simplistic, it's very paternalistic, and frankly, a lot of Africans find it uh, insulting. I would agree strongly that we need to, to be honest and admit where aid does impose very, very serious costs on recipients. A lot of the emphasis has been on short-term impositions, that aid agencies come, they hire up the best people and talent, or... Uh, endless aid uh, visits sucks up all the time of aid officials that are supposed to be doing their jobs. Instead, they're tour guides for uh, visiting aid officials, or they spend all their time writing reports. Um, that's all true. There's something called the Paris Declaration that the donors have agreed to that's supposed to cut down on those transaction costs. Um, I think probably things have gotten worse rather than better after the Paris Declaration, although that's, that, that's certainly an issue for more empirical uh, examination. The long-term costs that Dambisa mentions, I think, are also very, very uh, uh, potentially harmful. This is aid as an unearned income for governments, and it's not very dissimilar from the natural resource curse. Some of the things that we worry about when countries all of a sudden get a lot of oil money, what, what kind of effects do, do, does that have on government incentives and on, on, on some of the outcomes we'd all like to see? It tends to be very, very negative. In particular... Lots of aid over a long period of time can reduce the incentives to collect taxes by governments. And really, collecting taxes is the most basic function of, of a state. Um, 
So we can have a period where countries get aid over a long period of time, a quite high amount, uh, that, that can induce dependency that Bauer warned us about, uh, and that solutions are sought externally. You know, we have a problem. We can't possibly know what we should do. We have to turn to the outside for these solutions. Um, and, in fact, some of the, I think, the work that I've done that, that Ian mentioned talks, uh, uh, I argue that there could be an aid institutions paradox, where aid, which is supposed to be trying to build capable, sustainable developmental states, can actually undermine that, that very goal with the way that, that it's done. But my second point, um, I think, is that, and this is where I, I don't agree with, with a lot of the book, um, is, that, uh, is that not all aid is the same. Now, I take, I take her point that she talks about humanitarian aid, charitable aid, and then all other aid. It's this all other aid category that I think is a little bit hard for people to kind of get their head around. Now, obviously, the idea that all aid is bad partly is made worse by these, these mindless aid targets where it doesn't really matter what you spend it on. You just got to hit some big number. Um, and this political quest to constantly hit those numbers, which we hear at every G8 uh, summit, you know, did, it, is the U.S. on track for meeting their, their Glen Eagles targets or not? Um, and while everybody that works in the aid business, probably everyone in this room, has uh, many aid horror stories, it, it is very, very clear that lots of aid has done a lot of good in the world. And we also need to be honest about that. Here in the U.S., I'm going to talk about the U.S. since we're here in Washington. That's what I know best. I think that we're right to be a little bit ashamed, actually a lot of shame, that the U.S. supported Samuel Doe in Liberia uh, and that our aid helped to enable the destruction of, of that country under his rule. But right now, we should also be very, very proud of the efforts uh, and the aid that we're spending to help rebuild that country with President Sirleaf. We should be embarrassed about U.S. aid to, to Zaire under Mobutu that wound up buying French real estate and helped him uh, loot that, that potentially great country. Uh, but again, Americans should be very, very proud of the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief. Now, may, maybe, maybe you consider that charitable or humanitarian, um, but it is clear that a U.S. government program targeting AIDS has right now 2.1 million Africans on life-saving antiretrovirals. It's quite, simple, it's quite simple fact that most of those people would be dead if it were not for PEPFAR, and that if PEPFAR is killed and those people come off ARVs, they will quite simply die. Now, I think the Gerson piece, um, uh, in one sense, you could, you could dispute that, well, he's talking about HIV-AIDS. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about health. But what I actually think Gerson would argue if he were here is that it's not just that it was HIV-AIDS and that we think of as a humanitarian or charitable kind of donation, but actually that the model for PEPFAR, which was directly linked to trying to track results and make sure that money was well spent, is really uh, is, is the innovation there. You know, there's a reason that, um, that when we decided to try to spend a lot of money in the United States, a political decision made here in Washington, uh, that we didn't just use the same old system, that we built a new system. And I think that innovation uh, is what he's talking about. Something else I, I, I just want to mention about PEPFAR that, that's in the book. There, there, there is um, a piece in here where PEPFAR is dismissed partly because two-thirds of the money is supposedly going to abstinence. That, that's not actually true. It's, it's about 7%. Um, and whether you think abstinence programs are good or not or work or not, um, even if you take the most negative view, you could kind of look at that as a 7% tax uh, in order to get very broad 
uh, bipartisan support for PEPFAR, uh, particularly from the evangelical community, which was absolutely critical uh, in, getting, uh, in getting that program going. And I also think that PEPFAR, even though it gets criticized as maybe some kind of weird uh, Republican initiative that it's sort of squeamish about human sexuality, I don't think that's true at all. Uh, in fact, PEPFAR has bought 2.2 billion condoms since 2004. So it, it, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about, about PEPFAR. Now, just as all aid is not the same, all countries that receive aid are not the same. And we're actually not seeing some of those harmful effects that I myself have worried a lot about in my, in my career. We're not seeing those, those harmful effects everywhere. In fact, many of the best-performing countries in Africa the ones that are starting to, to get real foreign direct investment, the ones that the hedge funds are starting, well, until, until recently, are starting to visit, the ones that are issuing bonds, uh, are some of the very same countries that have been among the donor darlings for the last 20 years. You know, Tanzania, Botswana, Mali, these are countries I think that everybody agrees are more or less on the right path. They've also been among the biggest aid recipients. Now, that doesn't mean aid works, uh, but it also, I think, w we need to be careful and not interpret that Botswana, excuse me, Botswana and Tanzania um, have been totally aid-free. Now, Ghana is a good example. It's a country I know uh, pretty well. It's been one of the biggest donor darlings. Uh, it's been uh, in, having a program with the IMF. It's been one of the major World Bank recipients since 1983. Uh, it's gotten absolutely tons of aid. Virtually every donor is there in that, in that country. It's also probably the strongest democracy, I'd say almost certainly the strongest democracy uh, in, in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, it's been growing quite rapidly. It had a very successful euro bond issue at the end of 2007. Uh, the stock exchange, which I'm a big fan of the stock exchange. The book talks about stock exchanges. Uh, in fact, uh, the book that Ian didn't mention is about stock exchanges. I, I did my PhD uh, all about the Ghana stock exchange, so I am a big fan. Um, and it's been very good for those 35 listed companies. But that is not uh, a solution to Ghana's education and health uh, care services. It's a very good signal, uh, but it's not, it's, not a, it's not a replacement for these other things. One other thing on, on causality um, you know, a lot of the aid growth debate is about very, very arcane econometrics. I think we should all agree that uh, aid growth regressions, which has been where a lot of the economic debate is, is not going to resolve that question. Uh, but we need to be very careful on causality. Yamvisa, you, you mentioned that, that, that there was a lot of conflict in Africa in the 1990s. Well, again, not trying to draw causality, but if we think about the last eight to ten years, we, uh, which has been the highest, uh, we've seen an increase in aid over the last uh, uh, 10 years, every, uh, virtually every single year. Certainly, U.S. aid has gone up every year. Um, we've actually seen a rapid decline in conflicts in Africa. Uh, we've seen seven major conflicts uh, come to an end uh, during the two terms of, of, of the Bush administration. Um, and so that's not to say that uh, increased aid uh, led to that conflict going down, but I think we need to be careful about saying uh, the converse of that. My third point is, is, is that the, the aid halt, the specific proposal um, is, uh, is that let's tell all, all African governments they've got five years left and then the aid tap is going on. I, I think it would be very interesting to see what happens. The question uh, is why that is so you know, absurd, why that would just never, never happen. Um, and it's not because the U.S. has made commitments at the G8. It's not because the U.N. has begged us um, but because of our own political, uh, our own politics and our own political and national security interests. 
If you think about aid goes to many purposes, humanitarian reasons, national security reasons, diplomatic reasons, and aid for each of these foreign policy reasons is not going to go away because economists or anybody else says that uh, it's, it's really not working. In fact, if you think about those constituents of, of diplomats, national security types, and humanitarians, they're gonna, this is actually just going to redouble their efforts to find a better way uh, to do that. Um, so let me conclude where, where, where that leaves us. So if we don't want to throw out the good aid with the bad aid, and we don't want to turn aid off because that's or, or it's unrealistic to expect that it will be turned off, what should we do? First thing we do need to do is, is be very humble. You know, in the end, what the West can do to, to help support Africa in its quest for, a, uh, for lower poverty rates and higher growth rates is relatively limited. Uh, I, I spent a lot of time in Zimbabwe. I think Zimbabwe is a very sad case that no matter what happens outside, uh, it's really up to domestic conditions to, to destroy a country or to help that country turn around. Uh, secondly, where we do spend aid, I think we should focus specifically on the types of spending that either minimize or eliminate some of these harmful effects that, that people do worry about. Now, what, let me give you a couple examples of what those might be. For example, spending on technology here, here at home in the U.S. It might be that the way to f- combat malaria is to build a national, uh, a national malaria program in a country and to subsidize it with U.S. tax dollars. Or it might be to spend money on a malaria vaccine up in Bethesda at National Institute of Health. It might be. Similar, similar kinds of things could, you could argue for better seeds or better energy technology, uh, things that would help uh, uh, developing countries in particular um, through technology diffusion. And if you look at the, at the, at the vast uh, improvements in quality of life that we've still seen in Africa, even as growth rates have been very, very disappointing, a lot of that has been because of technology diffusion. Another example is to target the support specifically to things to help countries graduate from aid. This means working on the business climate, financial sector, looking at other areas of competitiveness. The book talks very, very positively about credit ratings. I think I fully agree credit ratings in Africa are terrific for many reasons. The credit rating programs in Africa were funded by UNDP. The the Standard & Poor's program was funded by UNDP. The Fitch program was funded by the U.S. State Department. So it's not totally disconnected from, from the aid system. Similarly with microfinance, very, very promising, exciting field. Again, a lot of that is coming with aid dollars. A lot of the good, um, um, some of the best-known uh, uh, microfinance institutions were started uh, through either feasibility studies or seed capital from, from, from aid institutions. <clears throat> and a third example is that when you are spending in-country, and this is partly um, a, a lesson from PEPFAR, is that you want to try to link directly to outcomes. I know it sounds crazy, but for decades, people just spent uh, uh, aid, and they just counted how many dollars were going out the door. They just counted inputs. There was no focus on outcomes or results. I think that that is changing. It's probably not changing as well as much as we need. And if you take that results-based orientation to its logical conclusion, you come out with a kind of program, a proposal called Cash on Delivery Aid, which my colleague Nancy Birdsaw has been pushing, uh, which I can uh, talk about if there, if there are questions about that. And what do we not want to do? We want to get away from just pushing money out the door to reach mindless aid targets. And I think uh, our European friends might not uh, like this, but I think we do need to look at the sustainability of some of the budget support models that the Europeans uh, have been pushing, and in particular the trend of paying the long-term salaries of civil servants, something donors used to shy away from but are, are really no longer doing that. 
And then my third, my, my third and final point is, is that we do need to remember that, that of everything that the outside world can do, aid is actually way down the list of, uh, of things that are important. Uh, private investment is, is much, much, I, I believe, more important, as I think Dembisa uh, would agree. Again, there's a public policy component here. The Overseas Private Investment Corporation, OPIC, has played a key role in helping to catalyze and launch private equity funds that target Africa, in fact, 13 of them in the last couple of years. And that can help to start to build a market for private equity, uh, um, and particularly for infrastructure investment. Freer trade, we have uh, the African Growth and Opportunity Act. We can certainly do better. Uh, uh, And then lastly, and most importantly, uh, international migration. If you look at the empirical studies, the welfare gains from global skills mo- uh, mobility dwarf absolutely everything else. Um, uh, and I think that's an area where, again, big public policy uh, component. So I think at a time right now where there's a global financial, uh, we're still in, in, in a downturn, uh, aid budgets are certainly going to come under pressure, uh, that this is the time for rigorous analysis about what works and what doesn't. Um, I think this book is helping to to sharpen that debate and to get people talking about it, and uh, thank you. Thanks very much, Todd. We have time for questions, so if you have a question, please raise your hand and uh, wait for the microphone and identify yourself. Hopefully we'll do it with the lights on and your affiliation. So we'll take the first question in in the front, please. Here we go. Thank you. Uh, my name is Femi Akimi, and I'm with African Development Center. I thank you for the book, and I thank everybody here. Um, I think when we start looking at uh, AIDS and developing Africa, a few things we know, we, we are all omitting some things. We need to at least look at the historical aspect of these things. Secondly, the international institution effect on the, on, on the issue of Africa. The, then the African effect. So also the issue of China in Africa needs to be looked at. Um, if we look at historical aspect of Africa, we will see that post-colonial Africa level too fragmented for her to self-develop. We have some country with only two million people, for example. How are they going to build power plants, railroad, and so on and so forth? If we look at the institutions in the U.S., for example, there's some disclassified information in the National Security Memorandums. I'll give three of them quickly: the 200, which said that we're too many Africans and the U.S. does not need us, that we, they need the mineral resource that we have. The 201 was to give weapon to Africa in 1971. Ever since then, there's escalate of war. The third one is the 46, which said the African in this hemisphere shouldn't be talking to the African and the Caribbean, and we shouldn't talk to the African and the Americans. Uh, having a look at some of those things, China, for example, with 18 million people migrate to Africa, have taken over the micro business in Africa. So also they've taken over the macro business in Africa. They do peddling on the street, and they do the big business. As a result, we have no chance of survival. Let me just shut for the purpose of time. Let's quickly let's go to my be, question. Let's go right to the question, please. Uh, the possibility of Marshall Plan, I think, is essential because it took some other global powers to destroy the continent, and I think they should come together to build it. And this, this last question I want to ask is on BOT, to finance the infrastructure development in Africa. Thank you. A lot of issues there. 
No, I, I think we'll just... Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, yes, there are a lot of uh, points there. I mean, I think the good news, not to push my book, but uh, I do talk about the history of, of aid. I do talk about China uh, in Africa. I think um, the thing that you're touching on with respect to the Marshall Plan, which I think is critical, um, are two, twofold. Um, first of all, I actually w- would not have written this book if uh, aid programs were finite as opposed to open-ended. The Marshall Plan and many other um, aid interventions, including the, um, the success of uh, what we call the aid graduates now, which I talk about in the book, um, I believe uh, is, is inherently because um, these countries, whether it was by their own decision of their leadership or it was uh, imposed on them, um, had a finite uh, program, which is why I, I picked five years. Um, just to be clear about the five years in the book, um, yes, of course, uh, Zambia is different from uh, um, a failed state like Somalia. So, yes, I, I use that as a talking point, but I, I'm hoping that we'll be able to uh, to debate the finer issue, which is uh, the, the need to have uh, uh, finite programs and not open-ended, open-ended concerns uh, or open-ended uh, aid programs. Um, I do think that there needs to be much more participation from African leadership. The book is really trying to get the how is to asking the question: How do we get African governments incentivized to um, to actually have this debate and to seriously uh, think about providing a lot of the things uh, that Todd mentioned earlier? Something like uh, a PEPFAR program. It's all well and good for the United States to provide that, and I am not disputing at all that uh, there are uh, many millions of Africans who are now uh, alive because of the PEPFAR program. But uh, I don't believe that having uh, that type of intervention is in the best interest of Africa in the long term because uh, as we are now in seeing, uh, facing budget constraints or budget problems here in the United States, one has to ask uh, what, what is Africa going to do depending on, uh, um, on the West for, for, even, uh, for even aid programs. Um, so, I mean, you do raise a lot of issues. Uh, unfortunately, I can't go through all of them, but I hope that gives you a bit of, of flavor of what I'm thinking about. So you a question right here. Uh, Jigar Bhatt. I work in uh, monitoring and evaluation of, of aid programs. I want to thank you very much for writing this book. I ordered it early from the UK. <laughs> and pitch shipping, I was really happy. Um, first, as a black woman, to write this book. Excellent. I really, pre- I really appreciate it. Um, there are a couple of things I wish you would have spoken more about in the book, and maybe because they're controversial, but I think they're important. And my question is, well, first, if you could give us... Um, your personal experience with the World Bank, what you did, I'm interested in that. Uh, Second, there's something that we're not addressing here, and that's racism, and uh, also the psychology of decades of receiving aid on the continent of Africa, where I work uh, frequently, and this idea of PEPFAR. You know, we give a lot of money to Africa. Here in Anacostia, neighborhoods in our own city, uh, the HIV rate is so high, and people don't talk about that. And so, you know, at the Kennedy School that I'm familiar with, I mean, racism never comes up in international development coursework. But when we talk about domestic policy, it's always there. They talk about the history. The original book, um, The White Man's Burden, was written by Winthrop Jordan, Historical Origins of Racism in the United States. And he talks about that. And, and what I want to know is you talk about this insidious idea. Can you get to the question quickly? Because we have a lot of people that want to ask quick questions. From now on, quick questions. <laughs> okay. The quick question is, is that why, why race was, wasn't focused on more? I think you're uniquely poised to speak about that. Um, I guess 
I was raised in a very positive household, um, and I just feel like having discussions about racism uh, in particular, um, and also I, I do talk about things like tribalism uh, and so on in the book, um, I think are, are red herrings. Um, I mean, if we are going to adopt the approach that uh, uh, Africa is not developing because it's a constant of majority black people, then we're at a loss here. Now, that's not to say that I don't believe that the fundamental aid uh, system, I do, I do have concerns about why it is it's been perpetuated. And I, as I said earlier, I do think that there are elements of it that are couched in pity. Um, however, I, I do um, stay away from the whole issue of, uh, of racism because I, I think that uh, I myself being here uh, is, is something that is, is relatively temporary. These issues are uh, serious, long-term issues, that, and it doesn't really matter, ultimately, who is saying them. I actually think the fact that Bill Easterly has uh, jumped in. I met uh, Hernando de Soto yesterday from, uh, from Peru. He's got a view on, on these things. I think it's important um, for people from around the world to stand up and say this is completely unacceptable, that we've had 60 years of such a bad record. Yes, it might be more nuanced. There might be some aspects of it that are good, um, but I think to focus on sort of the negative uh, aspects of, of things like racism, I think, doesn't take us much, much further along. Take a question in the back. Alex Douglas from the State Department. What's your opinion of the Millennium Challenge Corporation? <laughs> um, again, I, I, again, I feel like I'm plugging my book here, but I didn't write about this in, in, the, uh, in the book. I mean, I think the problem, uh, the good news is that I think they're fundamentally uh, um, good ideas. Um, it makes sense, for those of you who don't know, uh, the Millennium Challenge Account is essentially uh, a, a program where aid was going to be directed to countries that sort of passed certain governance and, and transparency and uh, democracy-type tests. Um, the problem, which I, I give a number of examples in the book, is that um, we're in this society in a situation where governments are still incentivized to lend uh, lend money, even if the if these uh, governments are, are actually not delivering on goods, uh, goods and services. And I gave an example, which I'll tell you very quickly now, in the book of how um, there are countries that are on the Millennium Challenge account list um, as as poor performers, um, high corruption, and so on, which the U.S. government refused or decided not to give money to. Um, but only weeks later, um, the British government actually sent money to these countries, hailing the, the country. I think Tanzania is the example um, uh, I put in the book, hailing Tanzania as a model of, uh, of uh, virtue and, and, and good governance. So even amongst donors themselves, there's no agreement on, uh, on who's doing what. And, and ultimately, African governments know that they can get money um, from one donor or from another. Somebody's always going to be there to backstop them. So I, I actually uh, I think it's, they're good ideas in theory. And I should say, actually, that if there were a way of getting governments to do the right thing um, with respect to aid, I probably wouldn't take such a harsh uh, approach to it. My fundamental belief is that we can't get there um, because of the, 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 uh, the desire by donors to, penal to penalize um, African governments for um, being for egregious acts or even for doing nothing uh, isn't there. The political will isn't there. So it seems perfectly okay, um, it seems to me, for the Zambian government not to provide health care and for the health sector to completely crumble. Um, uh, and uh, it, it seems that, that donors think that's okay as long as, as somebody else is stepping in to provide that health care. Well, I don't think that system is, is acceptable. Um, and I think the issue here is that we need to 
figure out a way to keep the government accountable. Um, and I do think, as I said, that if there were a way to uh, to uh, broaden or scale those type of programs uh, in an effective, credible way, um, then I probably wouldn't be so so negative about the aid system. But I don't think that that's possible. The question in the back uh, on that side. My name is Smoile Makaya. I don't represent any organization. I am an African woman. And I'd like to thank you, Damisa, for the book and you, sir, as well. Um, I come from a country where there's only 2 million people. That's Lesotho, the country that had an industry ruined by China and Agoa. And so your point about America being ashamed of what they did to Liberia, then afterwards they should be proud of what they're doing now, is the same as saying a man who beats his wife should be proud for giving her money the next day for those treatments for those wounds. The only reason, the only reason that our wars stopped is because Russia and America were tired of the proxy wars that they were fighting in Africa because you no longer gave us the aid that came in the form of, me- of weapons. So I'd like to really uh, talk about that. Another thing, I'm not actually asking a question. I'm giving you uh, an opinion of an African. So my po- another point I'd like to add, nobody ever talks about intercontinental trade. Nobody ever talks about that, that why, does not, why doesn't Lesotho trade with Benin or trade with Senegal or trade? Oh, it's always about external people coming out of here. The peasant farmer in Africa does not care about Wall Street. He wants to eat, he wants to look after his children, and he wants to look after his wife. He doesn't need to be competing on Wall Street. And what, has, what aid has done has prevented him from that. So thank you, Dr. Moyo, for bringing the situation up. But I do say I disagree with China. I don't want to see China in Africa. I don't want to see the U.S unless it's there to help and to support what we have. So please, sir, no more weapons and these ideas that we are helping in such a way. Is not, that's not happening. Okay. I promise you, I am from there. Thank you. You want to comment on that? Yeah, let, let me just say that the, uh, the, the, the idea of intra-regional trade, I think, is exactly the point. Um, there's almost nothing, there's very little that... that that can be done on that from the outside. What AGOA does, which is actually very, very modest, all it does is say, uh, we're not going to put up trade barriers or quotas for African products that want to come into the U.S. And 98% of the products from Africa that come into the U.S. come in under this, uh, under this system. Is that going to transform Africa and turn it into an export, uh, an export machine like China? Absolutely not. But what it does is it does no harm in reducing those, in reducing those barriers. Does that deal with the lack of intra-regional trade in, in Africa? Absolutely not. I think that the point that actually the first question and, and that you raise is that, that fragmentation of the continent, which of course is inherited from a Berlin conference table, uh, is, is a structural problem that Africa faces. Uh, if you take all the economies of, uh, of, of sub-Saharan Africa, including, including South Africa, it's about the same size as metropolitan Chicago in, term, in economic terms. Now imagine chopping up uh, metropolitan Chicago into 48 separate administrative zones with their own central banks, their own taxes at the border. Uh, you can imagine it would be debilitating for, for uh, economic trade and commerce. And then on top of that, expand it out across a huge, vast area uh, and spread the population out very thinly. Um, and that's th- those are the structural challenges that Africa faces. But if you look at the really very, very poor uh, uh, progress that we've seen, even within regional economic communities, uh, for reducing trade barriers between neighbors, um, that, I think, is a sign, you know, uh, 
perhaps with some of the malaise that Dambisa talks about, that countries haven't gotten serious about reducing their own trade barriers with each other uh, so that the expectations on the international community, either from AGOA or the Europeans have a similar preference uh, uh, program, uh, that the gains from those are, are, are going to remain relatively minor. Um, if I could just say very quickly, I actually do talk about uh, intra-Africa trade. Um, the tariff rates are ridiculous um, between African countries. I, again, at the IMF lunch, I said it was around 35% in the book. And they said, oh, no, in some countries it's 16%, like this is a badge of honor. Um, I mean, I, I, it's completely ridiculous. And again, if African governments, uh, if their survival depended on trade, then they would actually be, be bothered um, that, um, on average, African governments are members of four regional organizations, which actually do nothing. I mean, and, and let's, not, let's not fool ourselves. Um, I, I think even the performance of uh, organizations like NAPAD and African Union, what are they really doing? I mean, this is, they, they don't have to invent a wheel. We know what works with vis-a-vis -vis development. Um, it goes back to the point of, of a lazy muscle in these governments. The question is, how are we going to incentivize these governments to do the right thing for the African people? And my view is that if we can stop giving them this comfort um, that they can do nothing, they get aid. They do something bad, they get aid. Um, if we can get them out of that comfort zone and get them actually thinking about how the hell they're going to provide education and health care to their people, and if they don't do that, then they're out of office, then maybe we get a different result. Okay, we'll take a question right there. Hi, Nate Edwards uh, from Defense Department. I was wondering if you might be able to comment on what you think about U.S. Africa Command and the integration of USAID, uh, State Department, and uh, def excuse me, Defense Department um, just on the continent and, and how you see that and w what your comments are. Um, to be honest, I don't know much about it in grave detail. Um, I do think that most of the uh, – many people, such as Paul Collier, um, are writing much more about the sort of linkages between aid and the, the need for military intervention. So, I mean, perhaps that approach might work for countries that are in extreme – uh, extreme situations such as a Somalia, for example, or war-torn countries or countries that uh, continue to face uh, um, political clashes. But, um, I mean, I suppose for the vast majority of countries on the African continent, uh, they, they aren't in those type of uh, extreme situations now. And, and I think um, that's, that's the, the sort of, uh, those are the countries that I'm, I'm really focused on right now. In the top. Okay, we'll take a question right here. Yeah, in the front. Just wait for the microphone for a second, please. Hi, my name is Kelly, and I was a Peace Corps volunteer in the Republic of Georgia, but Lisa here was in Kenya, and Jess was in the Republic of Georgia. So a lot of what you're saying uh, really resonates uh, with me and I think with them. Um, my question is, what is the uh, reaction of normal African people, maybe in your home country, not the elites, not the people who know about aid in great detail, but just the normal Africans? And um, are they aware that this argument is going on and... Um, would their reaction be to welcome some change to the status quo or would they be fearful of it? And what would their reaction be or what is their reaction? I'm speaking on behalf of a billion Africans. <laughs> um, I actually think the lady over there uh, touched upon it. I know this is a crazy idea, but Africans really just want what everybody else wants. They want to have jobs. They want to have opportunities to provide uh, you know, uh, health care and education for their children. They want their children to have a better life than they've had. Um, and so um, is this debate going on uh, in, uh, amongst Africans every single day? on African, uh, African dinner tables. 
Um, are Africans pretty damn pissed off with the situation? Absolutely, on a regular basis. I mean, I know this is not a good uh, a survey, but uh, if, if it, it, I mean, I have to say I don't know much about this whole internet stuff. I'm ashamed to say. I know, I know very uh, um, very basic stuff, but if the uh, if my Facebook page is any indication, um, I, and I, I think it's a very interesting point that you raise because if you go on the Facebook page, I have numerous. Uh, uh, messages from Africans on the African continent and in the diaspora saying, you're absolutely right. This is ridiculous. The system has gone on for too long. Thank God you've said it. Not all of them agree with me 100%, including my own best friend doesn't agree with me 100%, but in essence they think that there's something wrong with the system where our continent is completely dependent on, on external, external help. Um, contrast that with uh, the, a lot of the criticism that I've received, which has mostly, uh, if not all, come from, uh, um, from NGOs, uh, Western uh, media critics, and so on. Um, and, and actually, and I think that that, that kind of tells you uh, what's, what's happening, what's the sort of underlying this whole uh, aid system. Okay, we'll take a question right there. Yeah. Hi, thank you so much for your book. I confess I haven't read it yet, but it has definitely zoomed to the top of the inbox. Um, my name is Ann Folan. I'm ex-World Bank. I'm now a private consultant. But I work in microfinance, and I realize that your book isn't about microfinance, but my ears, of course, perked up when you said that it's an example of a positive thing, and I believe in Mr. Moss did. Um, specifically, Mr. Moss, since um, Thomas Dichter, under the auspices of this very institute, wrote a very scathing piece about microfinance um, year before last. So my question is, um, are you familiar with the critiques around it that it's you know, a hopeless over-romanticization of what can be done by capitalizing what looks like micro-enterprises micro but are actually just bare-bones subsistence activities? Specifically, Dichter's criticism was that it crowds out initiatives that might, interventions that might be more effective, and that even to the extent that it doesn't divert resources, it distracts interest and attention. Um, that it, basically it's overhyped and it doesn't work very well, and it certainly doesn't work as much as proponents claim. So I'm um, looking for a reason to not lose my religion here. <laughs> sure. Well, I mean, it, it's pretty clear that. that I mean, with, with that much hype around one thing, it is going to be, of course, overhyped. Um, there are massive unrealistic expectations, I think, on, on microfinance. And I think part of the issue is that uh, not that many of these very small, you know, tend to be really tiny businesses make that leap to sort of at least hiring half a dozen or a dozen employees, partly because the business environment is so difficult in a lot of these places that the only way you can survive is by being a small trader under the radar, and you can get these small uh, loans, uh, which can generate quite, quite high returns. Um, I think uh, I, I, uh, uh, I'll put in a plug for, uh, for one of my colleagues' books, uh, David Rudman, uh, a very, very bright colleague of mine, is writing a book asking that exact question. Um, he's actually he, he's incredibly brave also because he's, putting, uh, he's writing it as an open book and putting the chapters out on the web um, so that people can see it as it develops. Uh, and he also uh, takes a, uh, he starts from a critical standpoint in saying, what is all this hype about? What do we really know about the impact of microfinance? Uh, and what, what is it going to live up to? So I think we don't really know, know the answer there, um, but it certainly is generating a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of attention and, and a lot of capital. 
Um, I guess very quickly, I actually dedicated a, a whole chapter to the discussion of microfinance. I think it is, um, it's true that it perhaps, uh, in fact, I, I know it's unlikely to uh, generate 7 to 10 percent growth rates uh, every year so that Africa can uh, meaningfully reduce poverty. But I do think um, as a sort of direct intervention, um, it certainly I believe it does uh, transform people's lives. Now, um, the point you're talking about is movement from like uh, $1 a day to $4 a day incomes. Yeah, that's, that's, not, that's not enough. That's not sufficient, and that's not what we, our ultimate goal is. However, in a world... Um, where people um, can choose to give money to uh, a particular charity or choosing amongst a whole list of charitable uh, options. I think that having microfinance as uh, one of those options is not such a bad thing. I just was uh, um, on a panel with uh, Mohammed Yunus, uh, the godfather of, uh, of uh, microfinance, and I was astounded to hear that uh, in the past year he's raised a billion dollars in uh, Bangladesh for the Bangladeshi uh, market. Um, he's also just rolled out in New York. I don't know if people know this, but I mean, I actually, it, it, he's actually become much more global. Um, he's also um, diversified the products, product range. So it's not just lending. He's got stuff on uh, healthcare and education to fund uh, borrowers, um, um, kids' uh, uh, access to these things. So is it perfect? No. Is it likely to transform um, continent of Africa to become this uh, economic powerhouse? Probably not. Um, do I think that actually it's, uh, um, it has a meaningful place that I would prefer to just more another another fifty billion dollar check going to African governments? Yes, I would prefer to give my money to uh, to Kiva or, or to Grameen Bank. Just to clarify what Dictor did say, uh, he, he was he was suggesting that we actually don't have that enough information about how microfinance works. A lot of data is missing, and the, there's a lot of rhetoric that uh, is difficult to, to prove. Uh, he does mention. Uh, some microfinance institutions that he does think wor- thinks works well, uh, <clears throat> but uh, he makes many of the points that Dembisa just made now. It's not the answer to poverty, and especially if uh, it looks like some of these aren't, in fact, self-financing, that they depend on foreign aid, that if the aid is uh, eliminated, they would collapse. And uh, if that's the case, let's not call them... Uh, some sort of market initiative, let's call them what they are, maybe more efficient uh, welfare. Well, we have time for one more question, and we'll take a question in the back. Yes. Hi, I'm Radhika, uh, Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. Uh, My question is, the proportion of aid as part of capital flow going into Africa is still small compared to private investment flows. Still, you have uh, concentrated your book on the effect of aid. What is it about the small proportion of aid that is crowding out the effect of other investment in Africa? Could you elaborate on that other than, you know, corruption and other issues? Well, actually, I mean, I I don't delink the uh, political system from the aid system in Africa. Um, The reason why I haven't written a book yet about uh, the private sector um, in Africa is because um, in many African countries, um, aid is 70% of government purse. In places like Ethiopia, it's over 90% uh, 
of, of government uh, uh, revenue. So, um, you know, that, that obviously meaningfully uh, dictates or uh, determines the political landscape. And from there, all the other problems emerge, the bureaucracy, the fact that there's a, a, not a lack of a business climate, the corruption and so on, which actually discourage uh, um, a lot of the, the business investment that we would like to see. Um, now, that's not to say that uh, Africa hasn't had some improvements. Um, as you said, there are you know, 15 stock markets and there's some other positive uh, things that have happened in the continent that are on, on the private side, um, but nowhere near um, the, the, to the degree that I would expect um, at, at this stage, given the history and information that we have about what constitutes development, um, we still have a long way to go. Well, I want to thank all of you today for joining us, and I especially want to thank our speakers uh, for contributing to this debate and for uh, Dambisa having written this book.